General Milley, then chief of staff of the Army, stood up and said that he listed some modernization priorities and said, but none of that matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The battle of air power and air defenses are the irresistible force hitting an immovable object. We're joined by a leading expert on air and missile defenses, Dr. Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. What's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered, JJ? Vago, the flow of combat arms to Europe continues. Poland is getting eight Apaches direct from the U.S. Army in advance of their new deal for 96. And the Czech Republic is getting some used AH and UH-1 Zulu helicopters from the Marine Corps. Aviation Week reports that the Poles are also interested in becoming a participating partner in the South Korean KF-21 fighter program. Watch for an MOU in the weeks ahead. The latest Ukrainian aid package, some $1.2 billion, buys new air defense systems. We'll get into how they are integrated and how well they work with our guest, Dr. Tom Carrico, later in the show. Along with the news of General C.Q. Brown leaving as Air Force Chief of Staff to become Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we now have word that General Kenneth Wilsbach will be leaving Pacific Air Forces to take over Air Combat Command from Mark Kelly. We might have some very informed discussion about Air Combat Command on next week's program. Hey, a somewhat curious contract announcement. Lockheed Martin is getting money from the F-35 Joint Program Office to help prepare an unnamed country to get its first F-35s. The strange part is that most of the countries we know of that have ordered the F-35 have done so openly, right out loud. So why one of them would be glad to order it but not want anybody to know that they're actually getting it is a puzzlement. And here's another puzzlement. The House Armed Services Committee put out an announcement yesterday that the markup of the National Defense Authorization Act which usually happens right before Memorial Day, has been postponed and will be taken up at some undefined future time. Vago? Uh, That last one is uh, extraordinary, and folks should be tuning in to tomorrow's uh, Washington Roundtable, where our roundtable is going to try to tackle this uh, with Michael Herson of American Defense International and Dov Zakheim, the former Pentagon comptroller who joins us on uh, the panel discussion for its implications. Apparently, the House Republican leadership has instructed all uh, subcommittees as well as uh, the full committees to indefinitely delay, uh, indefinitely postpone markup. Uh, Appropriations mark was scheduled for two weeks from now. It has been uh, indefinitely postponed. And, you know, JJ, I want to get kind of your sense on it because you lived uh, as a senior staff on the House Armed Services Committee. I mean, isn't this basically the reason they're up there to do this? (laughs) Yeah. Vago, this is the time of year when staff are sleeping in the office. The preparation for markup is the most intense period of the year. You're writing the draft of what's going to be the NDAA. You're negotiating with member offices who have requests for things to be put into the bill, what they can and can't get. There's lots of back and forth between the staff and the committee members and the committee leadership. 
And it's all focused on getting the bill out by Memorial Day so that there can be work done on it, passed by the House, passed by the Senate, conference over August, and get a bill out before the end of the year. All of these things have to happen in order to continue these unbroken streaks since 1962 of defense authorization bills getting passed. To suddenly say that we don't know when markup is going to be or if there is going to be a markup seems to derail that entire process. I will say that the markup event is when the members actually sit down and vote on things. Staff can continue to work up until that time and probably are working very intensely right now, but I don't remember a previous case when markup was not only postponed, but postponed with no makeup date on the wall. It's, uh, it's uh, incredible. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how that factors in to the debt deliberations. Obviously, on Tuesday, the president met with Speaker McCarthy, uh, as well as uh, senior congressional leaders to try to find a way forward. And so far, uh, we we don't have a, uh, a way uh, forward as we sort of careen to a first ever U.S. debt default. It's against that backdrop that uh, obviously leadership changes uh, are going on. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, you know, General uh, Kelly, call sign Grace Kelly, uh, did a terrific job at ACC sort of stepping up the game, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, General Wilsbach, Cruiser Wilsbach, taking over uh, that assignment from his tour at Pacific Air Forces, where um, he was uh, working very, very hard to uh, sharpen uh, the capabilities uh, of uh, the force. Um, obviously, uh, General uh, Wilsbach replaced CQ Brown, who will be going in to the chairman's position uh, if we hold the reporting as uh, as all accurate. Anything interesting there that, that jumps out at you? That you ideas that you think? Mm -hmm. um, General Wilsbach is going to be bringing over to ACC? Well, I think more than anything, it is a message to potential adversaries in the Indo-Pacific, shall we say, that the person who's in charge of U.S. air combat forces is intimately familiar with that specific theater and the capabilities that we're likely to be going up against and has spent the last four years thinking about little besides how do we beat these folks. That's a clear message going to our adversaries that say, we're ready for you. Uh, and I should point out to folks that uh, General Hawk Carlisle, former uh, CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association, was uh, also went to ACC from Pacific Air Forces, uh, where um, you know he brought a lot of those uh, ideas uh, for uh, a command that's critical to the Air Force's warfighting capabilities. KF. 21. Uh, it's fascinating to me that Korea is developing its own stealth fighter, even though it's an F-35 uh, customer. Certainly an interesting development, isn't it? To have a European country starting to participate in development. Countries around the world are beginning to notice that there's a gap, that there are countries that are going to get F-35, but a tremendous number of countries that aren't, for whatever reason, likely to get F-35 or to be allowed to get F-35. So we see a development in a few countries, the Koreans being the lead, of alternatives. If you can't get F-35, but you want something that's better than the F-16s that are on offer, here's an aircraft for you that is 4.75 generation, maybe 4.98 generation, something that's close enough and probably less expensive, and also, by the way, comes without the restrictions that the U.S. puts on other countries' use of American military capabilities. 
And let me ask you about the F-35. So who do you think the mystery country is? <laughs> well, now we're solving mysteries on the Air Power podcast, and soon we will fight crime. But <laughs> look, Bago... Yeah, JJ has a very good big magnifying glass he carries around with his wearing his deer stalker <laughs> as you go around trying to if you uh, had solve mysteries. If you had spent as many years gazing at P1 documents as I had, you would definitely need the magnifying glass. Look, as we I'm try surprised and figure, you have any eyesight left uh, at this point, <laughs> but go on. The funds are coming from an FMS customer. This is not, we know already, one of the partners in the F-35 consortium. We also know that this is a country that has already ordered F-35s because this is money to bed them down and get the aircraft in place. That's a very short list of countries that don't already have it and haven't said that they're going to have it. Of those, the one that comes to the top is Finland, in part because we know that they are getting F-35s. We know they haven't gotten any yet, but because of their neighbors, there's already anger at, with the Russians over Finland's accession to NATO, and they may just not want to provoke the bear further right now. Uh, interesting, uh, indeed. Uh, really quick question. If CQ Brown uh, becomes the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as we expect, uh, that means somebody will have to become the chief of staff of the United States Air Force. There are sort of two candidates, uh, obviously, for the job, General Alvin, uh, the vice uh, chief. Uh, who has been uh, partnered uh, with the chief in, in driving his, uh, his sort of tectonic changes across the Air Force. And, and of course, uh, General Jackie Van Ovost, who is uh, the U.S. Uh, Transportation Command commander. Who do you think is the front runner in this case? Well, I think it becomes a question of what they want that person to do. Dave Alvin has been a visionary in the Air Force for a long time, thinking about future concept. General Van Ovost is more of an inside, let's make the Air Force we have work better kind of player. Given that right now all our focus is on the competition that's out there, I would say that probably gives General Alvin an edge, but I am not the president of the United States, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, indeed. This is above our pay grade uh, at the end of the day, two fine officers uh, indeed. But it would be uh, something very different, right? right? I mean, one, a, a combat air force's uh, officer uh, and the other from uh, the, the transport community, uh, and yet still very vital, right? I mean, if you, you've basically got to move it, and at that level, you're as intimately familiar with warfighting concepts uh, as anybody. Sure, um, and there is precedent because remember that General Norton Schwartz was out of the Transportation Command. Indeed. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is Dr. Tom Carrico, the senior fellow at the International Security Program, who is also the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It's hard to think about anybody on the planet who knows more about air and missile defenses than Tom. Tom, welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Really great to have you on the show. Well, good morning, Vago. Great to be here and uh, glad that uh, there is an Air Power Podcast now. This is great. We're very happy uh, to do it. JJ is a terrific partner in this. Uh, and we want to let the audience know that you're going to be joining us on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, to give us uh, your updates on air and missile defenses, because one does not exist without the other. 
ultimately, as uh, as JJ made the point earlier in uh, the program. We want to start with uh, Ukraine and then go to lessons uh, from this conflict about how they should be shaping our air and missile defenses and then our industrial investments into uh, these programs as well, because obviously there's a surge in uh, capability and investment the United States is making in, in the infrastructure. As Ukraine prepares for its offensive. The air war appears to be at a stalemate, right? Almost every analyst we talked to, we talked to Dr. Jim Chow of Project Air Force at RAND, who made the case, look, they, they don't need fighters. They need more air and missile defenses, ultimately. But there is a Patriot battery, and it had a success, and we'll talk about that in a moment. NASAMS uh, is there, right? A number of systems have flown in there. But what are the capabilities Ukraine needs that it doesn't have and what are the numbers that it needs it in, uh, whether it's more Patriots, more current technology, right? I mean, because right now it's just a mishmash of, you know, former Soviet systems, European systems, American systems, drone buster, electronic means. What, what are the kind of things that they need and what are the quantities they're going to need it in for this next phase of the war? Yeah. So, first of all, the, what they most of all need is capacity. Uh, to absorb the, the just the numbers of things that have been coming over, whether it's not, no, a little bit of aircraft, but as you said, lots of lots of different kinds of of missiles, or, or frankly, you know, Shahid one thirty sixes that we call UAVs, but are just sort of a uh, you might as well call them a, a cruise missile, very long, uh, fairly long range cruise missile. Uh, they've got a handful of things in addition to the NASAMs, and now the up to three Patriot batteries, one from the U.S., uh, Germany, and the uh, the Dutch, but uh, they've also got some some old museum pieces. You know, the uh, the predecessors to Patriot and the U.S. force and other international forces, the Hawk missile, for instance, uh, the Spanish and other folks have uh, have ponied up some of those. and uh, That's all for the good. And as you note, the NASAM, which is really a, a cruise missile killer, uh, has had some uh, some pretty uh, some pretty good success. The NASAM's uh, Norwegian system uh, defends the U.S. Capitol. Good enough for that. Uh, but it also uses uh, the AMRAAM, the AMRAAM missile. Uh, the Australians are also actually getting uh, getting NASAMs. So there's a lot of different systems, but as you note, Vago, the challenge of tying those together is is a big one, especially when you kind of grope in the S300, you know, Soviet kit. And actually, yesterday's uh, drawdown announcement from the White House actually talked about uh, some additional unspecified means to quote unquote integrate these things together. Now that may not be anything more complicated than could be a couple bar stools for swivel chair integration, a kind of interface for people to sit together and, and deconflict fires. You shoot at this, well, we won't shoot at it, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's the kind of effort that in a more, more numerous uh, missile salvo you want to have is, is that kind of deconfliction and, and integration. And I will I have to commit at the top here, uh, my CSIS colleague, uh, Ian Williams, who just put out a new report uh, called Putin's Missile War, chronicling the first uh, 12 months uh, of the conflict. What was fired from where to where? What was its effect? And I think one of the important pieces of analysis in his report is that it hasn't been that effective. The, the, the Putin missile attacks, dispersed operations have a lot to do with it, and then active air defense. It doesn't have to be perfect to have uh, a pretty substantial effect on the behavior of, say, Russian pilots not wanting to uh, to fly. So so that's sort of a long-winded answer, uh, but suffice to say, as I look at it, it's capacity. Uh, you can't win a conflict with air defense, but you can lose one in its absence. And that's what they're kind of uh, hanging on to, is they need enough air defense, 
until this counteroffensive or whatever else changes on the ground. This is the first drone war. We've seen conflicts before where one side or another has used UAVs for various purposes. But this is really the first where both sides are operating offensive UAVs in quantity with sophisticated concepts of operation. Has that changed the way the U.S. needs to think about air defense in the years ahead? I mean, whether that's the cost trade-off between a missile and a UAV or having deep enough magazines to handle large numbers of targets? So what's the drone? You know, is the uh, the thing that set on top, the, the, the ISR platform that set on top the SR-71 and we kind of would take off and go do uh, the ISR mission? Well, that was kind of a drone. You're right. There's the, uh, such a dramatically greater quantity in this conflict than than others. But I would say that the, the threat spectrum at, at that end of the spectrum has so dramatically intensified and, and, and become more enriched and diverse that that these categories are really blurring. And so I mentioned earlier the Shahid 136. It's got a pretty, pretty long legs. And uh, you might as well think of it as a cruise missile. And what is a cruise missile? It's an unmanned uh, aerodynamically flying thing. And so you're right in terms of the quantity, but I would also say in terms of the missions, not merely in terms of the dropping of bombs you know, on tanks kind of stuff, but also the ISR. Uh, and, and that thing is that, the, that these platforms uh, or battle damage assessment, all these sort of things that the platforms are doing. And so as we think about the taxonomy of aerial and missile threats, uh, as I said, the spectrum is becoming more, more blurry. You know, whether or not there is a human being in the cockpit with a very expensive apparatus to support that, what matters most is the capabilities of the platform and what mission it's doing. And so you know, they are doing the missions of aircraft, the aircraft used to do in the past. They're doing the missions of, of missiles that have been in the past. The Nagorno-Karabakh conflict from uh, several years ago was, I would say, arguably a precursor, uh, a precursor to this. And there were lessons learned from that, that, that both uh, sides benefited from this conflict. Uh, but yes, the, uh, the sky is darkening with the number of these things. And uh, that's also going to hold lessons for how we think about really air power uh, and missile power uh, going forward. Let me uh, just uh, follow up on that, right? What are the lessons for air power when it comes to this? Because, you know, air power advocates would say this is what happens when you don't apply air power and achieve air superiority, uh, right? Any Western Air Force would go in there right away and take those SAMs out, would reach into Russian territory to try to do that. Uh, and it's because we haven't given the Ukrainians the tools with which to do that, that it's ended up in this sort of a stalemated conflict. What do you think the air power lessons are here? I think air superiority is something with which we had a, a monopoly for a period of time uh, that we can no longer take for granted. Uh, and, it, you know, the the physical characteristics of low and slow flyers uh, with low signatures I'm not sure that F-16s are really going to wipe the sky uh, of those. So I, I think that's a little bit of a, uh, of a disconnect there. Uh, it depends on kind of what problem you're, you're trying to solve here. If you're talking about hitting SAMs or something like that, maybe. But again, another lesson here has been that the maneuver and the uh, moving of these things around as opposed to keeping them fixed. That's really a huge uh, part of how they can survive. And uh, I know some other report... Uh, last late last year said in the first week of the war the ukrainians excuse me the russians suppressed 70 percent of 
fixed Ukrainian air defenses. So if it's fixed on the ground, it's going to get targeted. But if you can move and uh, disperse and, and uh, therefore deceive and fool your enemy's targeting cycle, uh, then you uh, then you can survive. And so I think that's another kind of relation between ground forces and air forces. You, you've got to you've got to move around and you've got to uh, complicate their surveillance uh, and targeting. But so I look, I, I think it'd be great to, for the Ukrainians to have those aerial platforms, but I don't think it's a panacea either. Let me go back and say one other thing, and, and I, I don't think I answered JJ's question earlier completely, and that is it also points dramatically to the fact that counter UAS is now part of air defense. And the, the demand signal for that mission is dramatic. And at the last year's AUSA, you couldn't swing a tank turret without hitting somebody's counter UAS widget. And the JCO, the Joint Counter Small UAS Office, uh, led by Major General Sean Ganey, you know, has been working to winnow those down and help the Army as the lead service, but the other services as well in their pursuit of counter UAS. Air, you know, just buzzing aircraft over, I don't think is going to be uh, sufficient. There's going to have to be some simpler ways to take out the low and slow things. And that is a very much an everybody problem, not an Army ADA problem. But counter UAS is going to be a, a massive problem for for everybody, as we're seeing right now. By the way, that was a terrific line. You can't swing a tank turret without hitting uh, a counter U.S. But well done. Well played. <laughs> I can do this all day, Vago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Go ahead, JJ. <laughs> well, actually, let's follow up on that counter U.S. a bit, because Russia has used all kinds of air power in Ukraine. We've seen conventional aircraft, U.S., cruise missiles, ballistic missiles of various speeds. Uh, looking beyond Ukraine, are systems relevant? that can't address all of those threats equally? Or is it better to have specialized systems tailored to specific speed regimes and flight profiles like dedicated counter UAS? So dedicated counter UAS, it's going to be a mix of things even for that. Uh, there's not going to be one silver bullet. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's lots of goodness to the gun approach. You see the Gepherds in Ukraine, for instance, making good work of these, of these threats. You see things like Stingers, which is in some respects overkill, in some respects underkill for certain threats. Uh, but you also see, I think, a lot of interest in drones that can go out and kill other drones. And so you see, for instance, the Coyote, the Coyote Block 2 and Block 3 that's out in CENTCOM right now dealing with these things on a weekly basis. It's not just happening in Ukraine. And the Block 3 Coyote has a non-kinetic effector. So it kind of flies up near something, figures out if it's a threat, and then does something to it non-kinetically, and then flies home. And the Army has a couple other programs, laser, uh, the high-energy laser program, and then a, a high-powered microwave that can fry the sky or fry parts of the sky uh, in different ways. And so I, I, I emphasize the multiplicity of solutions here uh, because, again, I don't think there's one silver bullet. These UASs come in different classes and it can do, it can behave differently and you can have different uh, ground clutter, background noise, and uh, other kinds of problems to contend with. So it's going to be a, a multiplicity of things. You're right, JJ. It's not, you're not going to be able to simply, and I don't think we, we don't want to simply take the air defenses of yesteryear, your 
Patriots or what have you and, and shoot them at this because A, they're expensive. B, you don't need that much. C, they're not designed for it. Uh, and D, um, <laughs> it just, it just, it's not, well, really it's not designed for it. That's the main thing. So uh, yeah, we're going to have new effectors. And so you see, for instance, Vago at every trade show we, we run into each other at, it seems like there's somebody has a striker in their booth with counter us things like hanging off the side, you know, stingers right. and lasers and guns and all this kind of stuff. So you'll see more of that. You mentioned Patriot, and I want to get to the Kinjal incident uh, in a moment, which the Pentagon uh, has now confirmed. How much of this is not shooting? Uh, you and I have talked about this uh, in the past, right? I mean, the Israeli model in Iron Dome and the way that it does intercepting is, and, and the U.S. does it also, right? It, that if it's not going to hit anything important, I don't really need to engage it. How much of this is uh, better queuing, better targeting, better munition management, whether you're Ukrainian or anybody else? given how hot and fast some of this stuff will be coming at you, right? And and the role of automation in that engagement, queuing, targeting, engagement circle. So not shooting. You mentioned the case of the Israelis, but the characteristics of the threat affect your ability to just let it go. And so when the Israeli Iron Dome radars pick up a mortar, or a rocket coming from the south, and they see it headed towards the desert, they can let it go because that thing is going to continue on a dumb ballistic path, and they don't have to worry about it taking a 40-degree turn to the right, <clears throat> leveling off, and then heading to something else. And so it's the principle of maneuverability as opposed to predictability that affects what you can assume about the threat. And yes, there's lots of rockets and mortars out there, but there's the emergence of a lot of kind of maneuvering 155 and things like that, you know, that they're going to have different characteristics than in the past. There's a lot of platforms out there looking over the horizon, doing air surge, giving the Ukrainians heads up about what's coming and where it's coming from. Is there any way that Ukraine's air defenses continue to be effective without that whole layer of U.S. and NATO platforms feeding them data in advance? Well, both the queuing and the intel that has been reported in the news, I would surmise to be pretty substantial, pretty important. But, you know, frankly, the Ukrainians would have been holding on with the air defenses that they're operating today if we hadn't given them to them. Now they had actually a decent air defense force, you know, when this thing kicked off in 22, but uh, I, I think that's fair. If the U S decided to pick up and uh, t take the ball and go home and I don't know, go park itself outside Taiwan for the next decade. Um, no, I, I think that would be a very bad thing. I am uh, going to take the conversation to the Kinshal. You know, we saw an example uh, of a U.S. Patriot uh, system taking down what is, uh, you know, a very much vaunted uh, Russian hypersonic missile. Uh, now there are a lot of questions about whether or not it's as hypersonic. We heard from Sam Bendet uh, of the Center for Naval Analyses earlier this week questioning kind of saying, like, look, it's more like an air-launched ballistic missile, uh, really, is what it, what it seems to be like. The Army has been working to update the Patriot system and all of its systems, actually, to engage a new generation of threats. What do we know about this engagement? What does it tell us about the Russian weapon and weaponry? And 
what does it tell us about the evolution of American defenses? Well, it is an air-launched ballistic missile. And ballistic missiles sometimes come in at real speeds of greater than Mach 5, five times the speed of sound. But yes, it is fundamentally an air-launched ballistic missile that may have a little bit of uh, maneuverability that make it harder to to get. But that that is what it is, which is why you, we can both miss the lesson here and overlearn the lesson, which is, A, this is a first. It's an important first for a, a Pack 3 and probably a Pack 3 MSE to hit a very challenging Russian missile. And so you can imagine that the uh, the engineers that, that worked on this, you know, have been listening to people say for so many years that, oh, Russian missiles are unstoppable in general. Uh, they have to be feeling pretty good right now. That uh, turns out American uh, hardware isn't just good on the offensive side, the, the Gimblers and such, but pretty good on this side as well. And if I'm China, I'm, I'm thinking about this episode for for, for, for those reasons. But what the Kinzhal is not is a, a long-range glider-type weapon, which is what people – glider or, or air-breathing scramjet kind of thing. And so there is, a again, an increasingly rich threat spectrum uh, for things that go under or are uh, mislabeled hypersonic in one way or another. Usually hypersonic, strictly speaking, should be applied when it's you know sustained and controlled uh, flight at the hypersonic regime, those conditions, those speeds, and those thermal and aerodynamic things that are pretty hard to control if you're not just zipping through the atmosphere with an RV. And so, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, I think it's as uh, much a big deal as a, an intercept of a medium-range ballistic missile or short-range ballistic missile as anything. So stay tuned. Uh, there'll probably be some more. And if the Russians use these things, perhaps in conjunction and concert with as part of an integrated attack, cruise missiles and that kind of thing, you know, that could be a more stressing case. But for the moment, the Patriot guys and the Ukrainians who were operating the Patriot and who went through in very short order at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, training that usually takes uh, Patriot operators around the world, you know, six plus months to do, they seem to be doing pretty well. You mentioned the counter UAS systems that are being developed and the improvements to Patriot. What are the major U.S. air defense programs going on right now, and, and how well are they doing? Are we going to see new capability in any meaningful time? Mm. So I was just out at Fort Sill last week for the, a full week at the FIRES uh, Symposium, which is both the Army ADA, Air Defense Artillery, and the Field Artillery. And there was a lot of discussion of this. Uh, and so when, the, when 2017, when, you know, history had kind of returned and the Army figured out that maybe we shouldn't have divested ourselves of Shorad in 2012, General Milley, then Chief of Staff of the Army, stood up and said that he listed some modernization priorities and said, but none of that matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. And they began kind of recapitalizing several programs. And the Army in the next couple years is going to be fielding I think it's five new air defense capabilities at the same time. That's a lot. <laughs> to field one or two new things at once is, is a challenge. But they've got a new battle command system, IMD battle command system, IBCS, that just had uh, IOC declared a couple of weeks ago and just had a full rate production declared. Uh, they've got the IFPIC program, indirect fires protection capability. Uh, that's basically a cruise missile type defense. That's our objective uh, capability, Iron Dome 
couple batteries of iron dome we bought was kind of our interim solution to experiment with, and the Army decided not to go that way. Uh, the IFPIC is an AIM-9 in a box kind of thing, but we'll probably have other uh, effectors, other missiles uh, as well in the future. Uh, in addition to that, they're filling an entirely new and giant 360-degree LTAMS radar for Patriot. And, you know, a new Sentinel and all this other stuff. And by the way, they're also pursuing a both Stinger replenishment and Stinger replacement, a, a Stinger follow-on for, uh, for Shorad. So there's a lot going on here. And the I mentioned the demand signal for, yes, for CUAS, but for everything else. The Army Air Defense Artillery is the smallest branch in the U.S. Army, with the exception of the Finance Division. And yet they, they have, especially the Patriot Force, has the highest op tempo and the highest demand signal for all this stuff. And you look around and when you see uh, Admiral Grady from the Joint Staff at CSIS a couple weeks ago said, air defense is Ukraine's number one need. And everybody else is like, well, of course it is. And yet the ADA is the smallest branch in the Army except for the Finance Division. Like that doesn't add up to me. And so I, I, I see the Army making some some good moves in terms of increasing their manning plans, especially for IFPIC program and adding some, uh, at least one new Patriot uh, battalion. Those are all good, but I suspect the lesson in Ukraine hasn't been fully learned that we need capacity and we're going to need probably a lot more than we're planning for in terms of the hardware side. And yes, in terms of the uh, soldiers demand them. Say what you will about the finance division, but those are some stone cold actuaries. <laughs> <laughs> strikes Boy. fear in the heart of China. Uh, strikes strikes fear in the heart of uh, anybody in the United States Army. You mentioned uh, lessons and and capacity. Look, we're, we're relearning a whole bunch of lessons, right? Uh, air and missile defenses matter. Uh, you know, I started my career covering it. Uh, you have been prophesizing this uh, for a long time. Hey, we're going to need this. This is kind of the future of warfare. Air power advocates have been saying we can't take air superiority for granted. And here we but, find ourselves. This is nice. This is Vago's being a nice way of saying that I've been banging my spoon on the on the high chair uh, for a while. <laughs> you, you have been and you've been talking about this and, and the fact that the burn rates will be tremendous when we get there. Right. So let me ask you about the lessons learned. You know, when you were talking about what each of the services are doing, the defense of Guam is, as uh, some have have said, sort of the, the Dante's Inferno of, you know, budget, uh, inner service, you know, equities, rivalries, cooperation, you name it. What are some of the air defense lessons we should be learning from the Ukrainians to step up our game, particularly in the Indo-Pacific and maybe specifically in a defense of Guam scenario, given Congress is sort of shaking the Etch-a-Sketch one more time on that, given the importance of defending against an adversary that has a lot of weapons that may actually be better than what the Russians are using. Uh, yea, verily, uh, the defense of Guam is the perfect air and missile defense challenge. It's something I've spent a lot of time on the past couple of years and, and uh, right now trying to figure out how to put all this together because Ukraine is a, a big land power. And they can have the ability to spread out and move around uh, and zip, zip about. But uh, on a place like, well, Taiwan or Guam, even more so, you're, you're going to be challenged in that way. And because you're kind of in the backyard of a near peer who is well-armed and has a, a full spectrum of air and missile threats to target it, 
you know, it's it's going to be tough. I, I believe it's it's correct. It's right. I believe the administration is right to be pursuing this capability. It's been Indo-PACOM's number one ask, uh, and it remains important. I worry that the timelines are slipping to the right too much on this, that uh, Admiral Aquilino wants it this decade, what the president calls this decisive decade. And uh, we really can't afford to be pushing to the the 2030s on a lot of this stuff. And so I think you need to watch that space. I think Congress will be scrutinizing that. There was a hearing yesterday uh, that touched on this uh, for SASC. So the timeline's important. I'll say the other thing is you, you got to have the full spectrum. And that is we don't get to decide which missiles China is going to hold Guam at risk with. Uh, we can't just say, all right, we're ready for your ballistic missiles and your cruise missiles and your UAVs, but you have to wait until 2032 or 2034 before you can threaten us with the hypersonic gliders because we're not ready yet. It doesn't work that way. They get a mix and match on their timeline. And so I've been pretty disappointed with the hypersonic defense timelines just continuing to be pushed to the right. And so the urgency that we attach to the defense of Guam also has to be applied to the hypersonic defense mission as well. The pack three shoot down of the Kinzel, a good sign. No doubt it will be a, a formidable contribution to the overall air and missile uh, defense of Guam, uh, the MSC. But um, I, I think it's important to, to stay atten- attentive to the, the full spectrum uh, as well as to the timeline there. In discussing Ukraine earlier, you mentioned that their real need is capacity. You could say the same thing about the United States in the Indo-Pacific. What does the industrial base look like in terms of being able to produce kinetic effectors? We aren't there yet to where we're just generating trons and shooting them uh, indiscriminately. We need to have a certain number of missiles with a certain number of warheads. Can the current industrial base supply what we actually need, given what we're seeing as the kinds of burn rates in a modern war in Ukraine. Mm, right. Well, I find it I'm optimistic uh, that official Washington has added a new word to their vocabulary in the past year. Uh, that word is munitions. And Vago, you can't swing a 155 shell in Washington, D.C. these days without hitting a think tank report or some press coverage of uh, solid rocket motor production in Camden or Huntsville or something like this. Everybody's kind of gotten on the bandwagon now and jumping up and down about this. Like, yep. Okay. Yep. You're right. But look, Congress in section 1244 of uh, the NDAA last year authorized multi-year procurement for this long list of things. And there was the Gimlers and the 155, but there was also, the pack three, right? And some SM standard missile stuff in there. So that's all for the good. The instruments uh, of multi-year procurement and increasing production lines are known. You also can't do it overnight. We have, ha- we have been for the, at least a decade plus, both admi- multiple parties, multiple administrations engaging in munitions minimalism and now overnight, we're trying to figure out, oh, well, we got we to gotta fix that. And it's one thing to say, well, you can just throw money at it, but you have to go and train some, a 20-something to work on the, the line. And you have to create the lines and the machines and all the, the facil- facilitation. And that, that's not a light switch. 
And to their credit, uh, I think you see the uh, uh, undersecretary for, for ANS, especially leading this for things like Gimblers and, and these other uh, other missile capabilities. So we're, we're moving in that direction. Uh, for the folks who say that we should be focused on Taiwan and let Ukraine burn, I would say we should be grateful. They should be grateful uh, for the munitions discussion and the facilitization and the production rate increases that would not be happening. That would not be happening if not for the whole Ukraine thing and the aiding of Ukraine. So I think in some ways this has been a fortuitous warning and a wake-up call to the U.S. industrial base to uh, to get after this problem. And hopefully uh, it won't have been too late. Uh, hopefully. And, and do you think it'll be, most folks say, between a year or two before we get our act uh, and get the runways there? Do you think that that's a good estimate? It, depending on the program, it could, it could be a year or two, a little more, but it's going to take time to ramp up. It's not just about a sole supplier of some widget uh, or some rare earth. Uh, it's also, again, putting all the buildings in place and the, uh, the lines and all this kind of stuff in place. And so I'm, I'm optimistic, but uh, it, it, again, it will take time. Uh, one last follow-up. On hypersonic, you said we're running slow on hypersonic defenses. What's our window on that before we've got to get it right? And when do you expect that happens? I said it should be this decade as opposed right. to 2034 uh, for the glide phase program or for some other uh, means. It's got to be part of the Guam thing, and it should be this decade. Now, having said that, if uh, I was king for a day and nobody seems to be in, looking to install me as such, but we probably need a short-term solution as well as a longer-term solution. It's not just one particular counter silver bullet here, uh, we should be looking at multiple effects. There shouldn't be one hypersonic defense program or one or two. There should be multiple. Um, Tom, thanks very much. Already looking forward to having you back on as a regular on the Air Power podcast. Thanks so very much for joining us. Absolutely. Great. Appreciate it, Vago and, uh, and JJ. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.